but how like these calls that the, the we, we're constantly seeking connection, but you and I like can't, I, I can't like give you the hug goodbye. I can't like, I can't. So we're, the dissonance, like there's a serious dissonance in this experience, like, and, and it's uh, without getting overly philosophical, like we are just constantly trying to connect and we can't do it. Professor Andrew Matringa is right. We want to connect. We want to believe that we are connecting, but it's just not the same. I'm Carlos Jimenez, an assistant professor in the Media, Film, and Journalism Studies Department at the University of Denver, and you are listening to PioCast, which is a podcast meant to amplify voices from the DU and Colorado community. This episode is about what it was like to be a faculty member in the middle of a pandemic. It was recorded last spring when all of DU's classes moved online. I interviewed four of my colleagues in the Media, Film, and Journalism Studies Department. Now, Andrew later found and read a post that captured his feeling of always being online and, of course, teaching on Zoom. Here's Andrew. This is the quote. It's from a guy from INSEAD in Paris, which I don't quite know what that is. But I spoke to an old therapist friend and finally understood why everyone's so exhausted after video calls. It's the plausible deniability of everyone's absence. Our minds are tricked into the idea of being together when our bodies feel we're not. Dissonance is exhausting. It's easier being in each other's presence or, or each other's absence than in the constant presence of each other's absence. Our bodies process so much context, so much information in encounters that meeting on video is being a weird kind of blindfolded. We sense too little and can't imagine enough. That single deprivation requires a lot of effort. I know you feel this dissonance. We are all in constant connection whether it's online, digital, you know, thank you, internet. But that person isn't really right there. Before the pandemic, most of us were already living some select part of our lives online. But a key distinction is that we got to choose what parts and how much to be online. The pandemic has really forced so much of ourselves, our social lives, our work lives, to be entirely online. Is your screen time going up? Because I know mine is. And so now at home, we're getting to know every nook and cranny of our spaces. Here's Professor David Capini, who lives in an apartment in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. I actually can see the Capitol and downtown uh, from uh, my living room. Uh, It's not that big. It's just a living room and two bedrooms. I actually live with a friend, uh, my friend Kristin, who is obviously also uh, stuck at home. Uh, So we're both uh, working from home. And, you know, taking a lot of Zoom calls uh, from the living room or for, from our bedrooms. Uh, so it's a, little bit, it's a little bit limited in terms of uh, living space. That's also one reason why I try to, get, to take a walk uh, every day because I don't even have a balcony. And we do have a balcony upstairs, uh, but it's closed. Everything is closed right now. So, well, and also our windows are really weird. I don't know why. I think it might be an American thing for uh, high-rise apartments. It's, it's, you can't even open the window, basically, which is really annoying. But you can, you can open it a little bit. <laughs> no, you can't even stick your hand. <laughs> no, you can't get out. <laughs> we have a really nice view, so I appreciate that. And we can also see the mountains from one side. And while the space of our home is ours... Some of us never anticipated working from home. 
I'm, I'm very glad. I mean, I tell you it was tough because I mean, and it's, it is still tough because as I was saying, um, I, I freaked out when I had a faculty meeting and everybody was saying that we're going online and it's the first time for me teaching online. And then I started getting that message during the faculty meeting the week before, or the two weeks before class starts. And it's saying unstable connection. I was like, oh my God, that is happening now. What about when I start teaching? And that's when I started, you know, like running in circles and say, okay, so I need to boost my internet. So I boosted my internet. And then I was like, okay, I need office setting because I didn't have an office setting. So I had to buy a desk and, a, and buy a chair, um, office chair. And, um, you know, and I, I made my, my kids room my temporary office, basically. Um, that was another thing. Uh, it's it's kind of weird because like I'm kicking him out of his own room so it feels like it, because I wait for him to wake up so I keep working until he wakes up and once he wakes up I get him out of bed and you know I get him out of the living room and I tell him okay I'm, I need to go back and he keeps telling me like he's just like my room my room my toys my toys you know stuff like <laughs> yeah and I keep telling him no but for Tuesdays and Thursdays they uh, it is it is my office so you know it's a compromise so that was professor Kareem El Damanuri who probably never thought he was going to have to negotiate with his son about sharing his room professor Andrew Matranga is in a different situation since being online was already part of his workflow. In some ways, things have come together for him, but the pandemic makes it really hard to enjoy even the good things. So there's a little bit, I think by now, 50 days into it, I have a little bit of sort of this sort of thriver's guilt. I mean, we're all surviving if you're alive and, you know, knock on wood and the people who are, whose families are affected, obviously, I I'm up at night thinking about that. Um, I've had students tell me about these kinds of situations. Uh, and so that, that wears on you mentally, but I have a little bit of, a, I don't know if I've coined this phrase, it doesn't, whatever, but thriver's guilt. Like I'm actually somewhat thriving in the sense of, I have a nice setup, I'm doing a podcast, my kids are in the backyard and my beautiful yard and they can play and they have each other. I don't have only children who are trying to homeschool by themselves. And I'll admit the schooling part is, especially for my kids is a pain point for me. And, and just as an educator and as a student of education at DU myself, that it's very, it's abundantly clear that there's just no plan B for this. I mean, those of us in higher ed are in a somewhat different position because that infrastructure exists already. Is it fair or is it equitable or is it enjoyable? No, it's not the best experience for online education, comparatively speaking. However, the class that I'm teaching now was always supposed to be online. So for my approach, again, I'm in a little different seat where I can just be like, listen, I, I was always supposed to do it this way. I, this is the only way I know how to do it. And hopefully everyone can just keep up, you know, um, I'm also teaching a brand new class I've never taught. So that adds a little dynamic for me of kind of like, it's all an experiment anyway, right? Like this is the grand, the grand experiment. And of course, we as professors, it turns out, are human. COVID is affecting each and every faculty member in a different way, which was the case for DU students, as we heard in our first podcast. For David, the pandemic became urgent sooner than for most people. This is because his family lives in Italy. And uh, the, the pandemic really hit really bad in Italy. And it started at the end of February. 
uh, and they went into lockdown around uh, March 9th. And so from that day, I realized that that was going to be really bad if it you know, impacted the US in a similar way. Uh, and also I was talking with my mom and my mom is like a very calm person. I mean, Italians tend to be very dramatic, but she's like one of the least dramatic <laughs> Italian people I know. And so some other people in my family, I, you know, are extremely dramatic and some of my friends. So, but when my mom, you know, sounded very worried and she told me she even started crying suddenly in the middle of the day because there was a moment in Italy that, you know, since it was the first country outside of China that was hit, people were not very sure how, what was going to happen, right? And so, for example, she lives in Tuscany, but they were not sure uh, whether Tuscany was going to be as impacted as it was uh, Milan and the uh, Lombardia region, right? So in the end, it ended up not being as impacted, but we didn't know at that point. And so people were very, very worried because the situation in uh, Milan and that region was very dramatic. And so that's when I started realizing, okay, this is, this is going to be a real disaster. And if it happens here in the U.S., it might be even worse. And boy, was he right. It has been a heartbreaking disaster here in the United States. 200,000 plus of our loved ones have died from COVID-19. As a result, the university and faculty have sought to provide as much support to students in this tragic time. Professor Lauren DiCarvalho talks about how faculty and staff are dealing with these new pressures. I think DU has been really good about reaching out to students and reaching out to faculty about students. Um, from my own perspective, I wonder how much they are doing in terms of reaching out to faculty and staff. Uh, I know I've posted this elsewhere in terms of our own department, but I worry about, you know, they do um, really encourage us to do regular check-ins with our students, and I've been doing a lot of those. At the same time, that's a lot for me to take on on top of it else and I understand that you know a lot of students are isolated weren't able to go home or are living by themselves right now and definitely need it I definitely understand that at the same time I don't want to just be a sponge um, and then not have an outlet myself and so I kind of I feel like in terms of helping faculty to help students they've been really great um, but I just wonder about what they might be doing in terms of faculty and staff as well. And so what has the process of transitioning to online been like for faculty? Here's David thinking back to the moment he had to prepare for courses to go online for the spring. There was obviously a lot of uncertainty uh, and a lot of stress uh, in the following couple of weeks because we had to move our, our classes uh, online and they are not classes that are thought uh, and conceptualized as online classes, right? <laughs> and so that definitely presented a challenge because uh, how we're gonna do that, what assignments, um, what assignments are we going to keep? What assignments are we going to change? How are we going to change them? What's the best, uh, you know, format for the class? What's the best format for uh, the discussion? Uh, what's the best format uh, to do peer review? Uh, and all of that. So, <laughs> And while the teaching has been hard on us, we are here for the students. Lauren and Andrew have some advice they wanted to share with students. I think I want students to know that it's perfectly okay to be not okay. Um, I know a lot of students have been really hard on themselves, people who I've had in the past that, you know, I, I'm so sorry, I can't keep up with the rigorous pass that I usually do and the rigorous pacing. Um, and that's absolutely fine. You know, I had students that even today I had to reach out to two or three former students of mine that I have currently and 
to see, hey, are you doing okay? I noticed that you're, you know, engaging a little bit less. And, you know, they're really candid in saying, I just need to take a little bit of time every now and then, right? Versus in the past, they would never have to um, do that. And so I definitely understand that there's a lot going on in students' lives. And I hope other professors realize that to be the case as well. Um, and at the same time, students realizing that vice versa, there's a lot of stuff going on in faculty and staff lives as well. What needs to happen right now for students especially, and especially if we're staying online for a little while, is you need to email your professor. You need to reach out to them because they're craving connection as much as you are. There is something that's being rewired in all of our brains. And, and, and it, this isn't like an evolutionary thing right now. Like this is like human biology, the course of human history. We, we will never go back to the way it was. We're never going to sit that close. We're going to wear masks for a long time. And, and the reason I say to, to, to reach out to your professors, not only do they want to help you, but they're navigating the same thing too. They might have kids at home. They might be losing family members. We're all literally living through the same thing. We've never really had a shared experience like this in a very long time, other than I might be sitting in my beach house or I'm just sitting in my master bedroom in my, my home in Longmont. Like those are different lives that are people are living, but they also though have those degrees of separation where they're being impacted by COVID-19. So I would love for students to set up that Zoom call and be like, hey, professor, I just want 15 minutes. As faculty, the nice part of our job in, in most cases is that it's fairly predictable in terms of the teaching. But spring was a real curveball. Just the amount of time it now takes to prepare a class has probably doubled, if not tripled. Kareem, for example, gets up bright and early. And then at 8 a.m., I'm inside my kid's bedroom. He's still sleeping, and that is now my office, basically. So I start fixing the desk and the chair and everything, and then I start prepping. Kareem prepares for two classes, one at 10, does office hours, gets ready for the next class at 2 o'clock, then one more round of office hours before spending the rest of the evening getting materials ready for his next day of classes. So on Tuesday, I'm prepping for Thursday, on Thursday, and I keep working. And I tell you, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I work sometimes until almost 12 a.m. So those are like crazy days. Kareem is not alone. Here's Lauren. It's really, really interesting in terms of I did not realize how much more intense online teaching is in terms of getting, I just feel like I'm always teaching basically, right? And so the bulk of my day is probably on Tuesdays from 9 to 11. I hold synchronous um, discussions should people want to join in. And I do that every two weeks to add in more synchronous element. I also every week do an informal speaker series at 11 a.m. Um, and then from two to four, I have online office hours. But then the other days, on Mondays, I spend grading. On Wednesdays, I spend grading. And then uh, Thursdays and Fridays, I spend recording narration for my PowerPoints. Uh, and so it's just been like, it's been nonstop, basically. It's been a lot more teaching than research this quarter. So, you know, personally, I'm kind of just devastated that this is how I'm teaching right now. But, you know, like anything, we're just doing what we can to get by. And that's all we can really do right now. The online experience, as we heard from students in the first podcast episode, was definitely weird. And faculty agree, but it's weird in a few specific ways. Teaching asynchronously is a little bit challenging because obviously you don't have that reaction from the students <laughs> that you have in a face-to-face. -face. 
I think so. It's very bizarre to just talk into yourself, you know, and, and I felt extremely awkward the, the first few times uh, that I did it. Uh, but uh, I think I'm getting better at it. Uh, you know, you just have to get used to it because that's the way it is right now. Uh, and I am enjoying uh, this uh, individual meetings and also the uh, class check-ins that I'm having. And so I have the opportunity to talk directly with students. And I think students seem to appreciate that. Some students also appreciate, uh, from the feedback that I got, the asynchronous model because they are able uh, to work on the class on their own time, especially in, in, a, in a moment where there is so much stress and uncertainty. So I think from the student perspective, it's actually better. You know, uh, From the teacher perspective, I don't know. <laughs> but in terms of online class I'm talking about, right? So obviously the optimal situation would be if we could teach face-to-face, -face, but from the student perspective, I think they do appreciate the asynchronous component uh, because they don't have to be, uh, you know, two hours on Zoom and then there are uh, connection problems and all of that. Um, yeah. Participation, that one gets a bit tricky. As I was mentioning earlier, I think the mute but I mean there, because there is a level of nonverbal participation that I feel you, you tend to lose in Zoom uh, and I'm talking more about the sonic element of the feedback like you know uh-huh yeah you know stuff like that chuckles even you know stuff like that that you don't it's like literally you are <laughs> you you are I don't know it's it's vacuum you know it's vacuum and you're teaching in a vacuum However, it's very humanizing, I would say. Um, you know, seeing the student's mother walk in and they are hearing my kid, you know, and uh, in, in the background, you know, screaming or yelling in the living room or something. It's it's uh, humanizing in that regards. Um, as I said, like I'm I'm teaching I'm teaching in my uh, uh, kid's bedroom, so they see like the crib behind me and and his pictures and stuff. So we are peering into parts of each other's lives that we wouldn't otherwise. The sounds of other people, pets, or in my case, a newborn crying in the background. This shows just how strange of a time we're living in. All of this, of course, has altered our perspective and, in some cases, our relationship to work. So I, I work I work a lot. I actually work more than I work in uh, than before the pandemic. Um, but but at least seeing my uh, seeing my wife and kid uh, more so that has been uh, that has been really nice. Um, I I had noticed that I used to come home sometimes a lot of times actually after my kid uh, goes to sleep. Now no, I'm in I'm I'm at home anyways when he's going to sleep. So that's that is something I'm happy about. Um, yeah, I think, I think what I was telling, what, what I was saying earlier, reflecting on stuff that I used to take for granted. So definitely cherishing that and thanking God for the stuff I have and thanking God that I have a job now. I mean, you know, um, what over 20 million people have already filed for unemployment and, you know, my my brother in in Dubai, he got furloughed for like three months and, you know, people are struggling. So definitely this is something uh, that is 
rewarding to feel that at least I still got a job, I have a roof, I have food, you know, that, you know, some, not so many people don't, are not that privileged. So before the pandemic started, I had a work-life balance that was more skewed to skewed toward work. I feel like when this first started, it leaned really heavily to work. And my husband would say, Lauren, you always had like a terrible work-life balance. And yet now it's just all work. Um, and so I really had to take a step back and say like, wow, now that I'm teaching online, you know, even in the middle of the night, I can get up and like look at the discussion board and all that. It was just getting out of hand. Um, and now I've put in more boundaries. I try not to look at it as much on the weekends. I usually don't take off on weekends during the regular quarter. And now just for my own sanity, I just need to kind of put away technology, go outside, do things with my husband and my two dogs just to unwind. Um, I feel like I'm grateful that I have more time to do um, exercise. I really like exercising my bar workouts that I love every day. Um, during the quarter, it just gets so hectic and I'd be so tired at the end of the day after leaving campus at like five or six that I'd be, you know, instead I just want to go home and eat dinner instead of working out. So I'm really grateful. That's the silver lining that I'm working out more. The pandemic really makes you think about what you value and why. This has forced many of us to take a step back and realize that work isn't everything. In this next part, David talks a little bit about what he thinks might be the societal impact of the pandemic. You know, a lot of people are hoping that this pandemic will change our pace of life. People uh, will become more, um, uh, will pay more attention to uh, societal issues uh, that are important, like taking care of our environment, for example, uh, you know, um, uh, spending more money and investing more resources uh, in healthcare. So a lot of people are thinking that maybe this pandemic could change uh, our society for the better in terms of re our resetting of values, right? And so we're gonna uh, place uh, some values um, as more important than others compared to the past, right? And uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm actually not not sure about that because there are other forces in place uh, that have to do, uh, uh, you know, what people becoming, for example, what people become, for example, even more individualistic and more nationalistic if there is less wealth and less resources. Uh, and I think, in my mind, that that would depend on the context. It would depend on the country. It would depend even on the state uh, where you live. Um, and so. Um, that would be different, uh, I feel like, uh, depending on the context, on which direction uh, we will go, whether there would be uh, more investment and more attention to the common good, which I think that's something that is uh, really lacking in our society today, uh, or whether we will go towards a more, even a more individualistic and more a nationalistic society and you can see that you know even from what's going on in the news that it's not clear in which direction david's right it's not so simple we are at such a delicate moment and there's no definitive path just yet but it's up to us to resist the urge to become individualistic nationalistic and to blame the poorest and neediest in our society we've seen how that route ends we need to try something different, but ultimately that's up to us. It's up to the next generation of leaders and our ability to play the long game, not the short one. And in the craziest of times that we're living in, literally a pandemic, 
Kareem has a message for students that he's been sharing in his classes. I, I mean, I would tell them we, 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 we got your back. Um, don't stress out. I know it's, it's, it's weird to say don't stress out when everybody's stressing out, but you know, it's just, it's just going to pass. And maybe if I would leave them with, with um, one sentence, it would be the sentence that I played at the very beginning of my class. I basically played Bob Marley's song, uh, Don't Worry, Everything Will Be All Right. Don't worry about a thing. Cause every little thing gonna be alright. I'd like to thank the University of Denver, the Department of Media, Film, and Journalism Studies, Ethan Crawford for all his technology support, and a special thank you to my colleagues, David Copini, Lauren DiCarvalho, Kareem Eldamanari, and Andrew Matringa for sharing their time and experiences during week six of the spring quarter. Our next episodes will feature stories produced by students. And as always, if you want to be a part of Piocast, if you have a story that you think we should be telling, please reach out. We're here. All right. Until next time. Melodies through. Singing. This is.